Good morning, church family. Please open your Bibles to Habakkuk. My name is Abigail Walker, and I have the honor of reading our scripture from Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 16. Now, these words are recorded by human hands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and therefore they come to us today as the very word of God. So let's ready our hearts to hear together the word of our Lord from Habakkuk 3, verses 1 through 16. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigidanoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I, I really enjoyed studying Habakkuk along with you, and, and um, as I mentioned, we've been away, but I've, I've really enjoyed listening to the sermons um, that Josh and Billy and John have been preaching. This is a really important book, and I really believe that. The book of Habakkuk gives us this wonderful little window to understand God more fully and more rightly. To, and I want to use this word, and then I want to spend a little time on it, to imagine God 
more fully and rightly. There's a concept, you know, I've talked about, uh, Charles Taylor talks a lot about this idea of the social imaginary, and I know I've talked about that. This, this idea of an imaginary, it can be an, a, a confusing word because when you think of imagination, you think of like fantasy, things that don't exist, right? But, but really, the, the idea of imaginary, the idea of imagining something, it, it's, it's, it's much bigger than that. Uh, it's, it's not, it should not be in your mind a word that only applies to that which is fantasy. Uh, a definition, the imagination or an imaginary is a faculty or action of forming new ideas or images or concepts of external, external objects not present to the senses. So that, that's, a, that's an important, if, you, if, you, if we worship a God that we can't see, right, we have to have the right imaginary of him. Again, it's not that he doesn't exist. It's not that it's fantasy, right? It's, it's that we, we understand him, we imagine him, we, we, we understand who he is rightly and fully and, and as he actually is. Now, we're doing this all the time, okay? This idea of imaginary, it happens all the time. And it's not about things that aren't real. It's about things that, that are real. I mean, so for example, every time I take a golf shot, I imagine what the shot should do. Now, it's pretty rare <laughs> that the reality of the shot matches my imaginary of the shot, but that's the goal, right? I'm, and I'm not imagining a fantasy shot, right? I'm not imagining, you know, some sort of, you know, par five shot that goes, you know, all the way to the green, green or something like that. No, I, I'm imagining the actual shot that, that I am trying to hit. And again, sometimes... It's real, but a lot of times, sadly, it, it's not. But we, we do the kind of the same thing with, with God. We, we, we understand some things about him, and we imagine his character. What, what is he like? What does he value? And that's why we need to study the Bible. That's why we need to get in there, right? You need all of the factors. I mean, sometimes I imagine a shot, and it actually does exactly what I wanted it to do, but I didn't know that there was water just over that hill, and it goes into the water. And, and so my imaginary of the shot was actually unhelpful. It was, it was wrong. Um, you know, I grew up in Alabama. I live here, obviously, in Atlanta now. And I love Atlanta. I mean, I love Atlanta. I want to live here the rest of my life. I love this city. But if you grow up in Alabama, those of you who are in Alabama know, Alabamians have a certain imaginary of the city of Atlanta. And it's not good, right? It's condescending, really. It's why, why would you ever want to be there? It's so crowded. All these people, they're not cool. They're weird, you know. There's this almost condescending view, imaginary, that Alabamians have of Atlanta. And, and I, I grew up, in fact, we were, we were moving from Birmingham to start Christ's covenant. All of the folks at our church in Birmingham said, well, we know God must have called you because who would ever want to move there, you know? Who would ever want to live in that city? But of course, as, as I've gotten here, and, and of course, I believed this before I, that, that moment, but I, God's, re, or I've been reoriented. It's like, man, Atlanta is awesome. Like, I, I've, I've gotten deeper in. I've, I've understood more of the city. Not that some of those things, there, there's a lot of people and there's a lot of traffic. None of those things aren't true. There's some truth to my previous false imaginary, but I just didn't know enough, right? I didn't know enough to really imagine what Atlanta was like rightly. And, and it, we do the same thing with God. A lot of us have a certain imaginary of what God is like, of what he values. But if we're not careful, if we don't know enough, 
we haven't listened to how God has revealed himself, a lot of times our view of God can start looking a lot like our view of ourselves. Or a lot of the times we, what we imagine that God values are the things that just everybody around us kind of values. And that is why studying all of scripture really, but, but the book of Habakkuk is so important. It helps you get more information. It helps you understand something about God that I actually think is kind of unnatural to the modern 21st century Christian living in America. You know, if you're here today, some of you may have struggled to believe in God. You may have said something like, and I hear this a lot, how can I believe in God? There's so much injustice. There's so much evil. There's so much cruelty in the world. And really what you're saying there is my imaginary of what God should be like would not allow the way things are. Therefore, there must not be a God, right? God, God, God is not lining up with your imaginary of God. But even Christians can do this. We, we look at the world around us. We see the evil in the world around us. We say, where is God? You know, there, there's so much sexual immorality. There's so much division. There's so much anger. There's so much untruth in the world. There's so much injustice, so much poverty. Why isn't God doing something, right? You might say, why isn't God getting them? Why isn't God taking them down? All of this makes some assumptions about God that, that may not be true. You're, you're imagining God to be a way that he may or may not be. Now, just like my assumption of Atlanta, there may be some truth that's framing your imaginary of God, but you have to dig deeper to really understand him. And Habakkuk really helps us to do this. There's a clue in the book of Habakkuk, and it's not unique to Habakkuk. It's, it's true of the whole scripture, but there's a real clue here that you've got to hold on to, and it is this. God, the true God, as he reveals himself, deeply cares about his covenant people. I mean, God deeply cares about his covenant people. And I think some of us can miss this. You know, a lot of Christians today, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about the evil out there, the bad out there. And of course, the news media would want us to do this, right? The world is really bad, it makes us fearful. It makes us buy things. The news media knows what they're doing. But here's what's interesting about the Old and the New Testament. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. I mean, if you know anything about world history, all these civilizations that were existing around the people of God in the Old and the New Testament, there's a lot of corrupt and bad and evil things going on. But what God really cares about, what the scriptures really focused on is God's covenant people. We see this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Of course, in the New Testament, God's covenant people is not defined, it's not uh, confined, rather, by one covenant family, by the descendants of Abraham. God is creating a new people, praise God, of all tribes and all tongues and all people. God is creating a new man, a new kind of mankind in Christ from people of every tribe and tongue and people. But what we see in the New Testament is that God is concerned with them, this new covenant people. He wants them to be pure. He wants them to be holy. He wants them to be distinct. He wants them to be like him. And of course, the invitation of the gospel to you today is that whoever you are, you can come into this people through Jesus. But read the New Testament. Read the, no the Old Testament. There's a lot of bad things going on around the people of God. And God never says, man, can you believe what the Romans are up to? Can you believe how bad Nero is ruling right now? 
No, his concern is the people of God. His concern is his covenant people, that they would be pure, that they would be holy, that they would be righteous. And actually, all these things around them exist. Actually, is as it were, God is using these other nations, other forces around them to, to bring about their good, to bring about their purity. Now, when we show up in Habakkuk, even though God has called his people to be holy and distinct and righteous, they are not. They're doing everything that the other nations are doing. They're not listening to the prophets. They're not obeying God. They're full of violence and wickedness. And Habakkuk is calling out to God, where are you? And God's response, this is what Josh looked at a few weeks ago. God's response is, I'm going to answer you. But how I'm going to answer you is one of these other nations that's way more wicked than you are. I'm going to raise them up to basically punish you, to oppress you, to bring destruction and pain upon you. And I'm doing that to purify you because I love you, because God is deeply concerned with his covenant people. Chapter two, Billy preached this. He basically says, in this destruction, in this punishment, the ones that can continue to look to me and be faithful to me, they will be counted righteous. John, last week, looked at God's condemnation of the Chaldeans. So, you know, he's basically saying, they're going to take over you, but they're still evil. They're still wrong. Don't get a sense of glory from their material possessions. One day they will be condemned because the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. So that's the message. That's the message of this book. God is saying, I'm going to purify, strengthen, correct, discipline my people with these other evil people, the Chaldeans. Now, if you come to God with a certain 21st century, maybe even evangelical understanding of who God is, you may not have a category for this. This book may be delusional and disorienting for you. A lot of us know how to praise God when you get a promotion. <laughs> a lot of us know how to talk about the goodness of God when everybody in your family is healthy. A lot of us know how to, uh, you know, talk about how amazing God is when you've been diagnosed with cancer, but then you were healed but can you talk about the goodness of God when someone in your family dies? Can you talk about the goodness of God when you don't get the promotion? Can you talk about the goodness of God when you don't know how you're going to pay the next bill? Can you talk about the goodness of God when you get diagnosed with cancer and you go for the checkup and they say, yeah, you still have cancer and it's worse this time? Do you have a theology that is capable of looking to the goodness and faithfulness of God then. Right. And that's why Habakkuk is so helpful. <laughs> Have you imagined God rightly? Right. Is your imaginary of God some sort of 21st century version or is it real God? But if, but if you read this book and get it, what, what this can do for you is to help you in any situation. And, 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 and if you really get what I'm saying to you, you'd be like, that is the most amazing offer that anyone has ever made me. In any situation, to be able to have peace and poise, a sense of joy, 
Not happiness necessarily, but peace and joy and calm in whatever storm you're in. What, what, if, what, if, what if I could say, hey, <laughs> I could offer you that. You can say, well, that's the silver bullet. That's the, that's the golden gun. <laughs> and, that's, and that is what Habakkuk offers us. And you know, like, I know there are some of you, and right now, I mean, you're, you are dealing with some family issues. There may be abandonment. Maybe your parents, just, you feel like you've been abandoned by them. Maybe on the other side, you feel like your parents are totally controlling of you. Habakkuk will help you understand that if you live by faith, even that horrible situation can be one of God's greatest graces in your life because he deeply cares about his covenant people. Maybe you're dealing with an employment issue. Maybe you don't have a job. Maybe you're, you hate your job. Maybe you don't like your coworkers. Maybe you're in an environment that is celebrating things that are ungodly and you don't know what to do. You know, I'm not saying to be passive in those situations, but if you, if you really get this book, then, then you can understand that, that those difficult work situations actually can be some of God's greatest graces in your life because God deeply cares about his covenant people. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's an issue with one of your children. If you don't imagine God rightly, when you face hardship, when you face a trial, you can get disillusioned with God so quickly. Hardship, I want you to hear this. Hardship can either make you so much wiser, so much stronger, so much softer and more compassionate, or it can make you bitter. It can make you so self-righteous. There's nothing like, there's nothing like a hardship that can make you self-righteous. Look down on others, cynical, skeptical of others. And that's why you need Habakkuk. <laughs> What's hardship gonna do in your life? Is it gonna make you more complete? Is, God's gonna work, is God gonna work out something in your life wonderful through the hardship or trial that you're facing? Or is it gonna turn you into a disillusioned cynic? So let's look. Now, I talked about the situation. The Chaldeans are coming. Everything's gonna be ruined. There's gonna be pain and poverty and destruction. And what is Habakkuk's response? And that's where we come to today, chapter three. And really, this is the greatness of the book. His response is worship. His response is, is to worship God. He's just been told, <laughs> the Chaldeans are coming. They're gonna ruin everything. And his response is to worship the Lord. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Now, I looked at that word. So when I first read this, I thought Shigianoth was like a scribe, right? That's what you would think. Shigianoth is writing down whatever Habakkuk was praying. But scholars don't believe that word is a name. They think it's actually a musical word. So for those of you that were planning to name your firstborn Shigianoth, it's, it's, not, it's not actually, I don't think, a biblical name. It's, it's actually what scholars think. It's a hymn tune. Uh, for, most of y'all are too young to remember this. But when I was growing up in church, we used to sing with these little books in our hand in church. They were called hymnals. And the worship leader, like the Jordan Coughlin of the situation would say, turn in your hymn books to pay, you know, to hymn number 473. And they would always skip the third verse. Do you remember this? You know, the first, second, and last, you know. Um, but anyway, which usually the third verse actually was like the gospel verse in the hymns, but we, we, we didn't care about that kind of stuff in the 90s and the 80s. But anyway, we had these little books. And, and so the, 
the, the, the song, whatever the, the, the lyric was that we were singing had a title, but also the tunes had a title and it was in the book, the, the little hymn tune, whatever it was, had a title. So um, some of y'all know, it's, it's, it's kind of one of these great old um, songs, all hail the power of Jesus name. Y'all know, anybody sing that song? Well, there's two hymn tunes to that. So there's one that you probably know, it's called the coronation and it's like all hail the power of Jesus name. But there's another tune, same song, but if you see the word diadem, if you sing it by the diadem, a different tune, it's like, all hail the power of Jesus. It's a totally different tune. And so that's what this is. It's the Shigianoth. He's gonna, here's his prayer and here's his favorite tune. That's what's happening here. And in this song, there's, there's kind of three broad requests or three broad moments that I am seeing First of all, it's Habakkuk's request. Second, we see Habakkuk remembering the power of God. And then finally, Habakkuk's faith. Really important. So his request. The first little part, he, he's, just look how he gets into this. I mean, the worst, he's, he's given this worst news. And in the midst of this, he's remembering the Lord. I've heard the report of your work. And Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive my fear of you. He says here in verse three, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, this is a reference to how God was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, how he was leading them into the promised land. It's a reference to God's care of his covenant people, God's power and care toward his covenant people. God deeply cares about his covenant people. And in the midst of this, as he's, as he's remembering what God has done, he's remembering how God has cared for his people, he says this, such a powerful phrase. He says, in wrath, in your wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. It's such a powerful biblical phrase here. Jim Hamilton, who's a Bible scholar that I appreciate and, and really like, he, he says, you can, you can understand the whole Bible this way as the demonstration of God's glory in salvation through judgment. You can understand the whole Bible this way. It is the demonstration of God's glory. God is showing himself to be glorious in salvation and in salvation of his people. And you can almost say it this way, and in the destruction of his enemies. In, in, in salvation through Judgment. God is showing off his glory. He's bringing the glory to himself by, by bringing judgment on those who deserve judgment and by saving those that deserve judgment. You, you can't understand forgiveness and mercy, the great mercy of God. In your wrath, remember mercy. You can't understand mercy except against the backdrop of God's judgment. The mercy of God is meaningless unless God's wrath and justice is real, exists. You know, I was talking last week with some friends about movies that really moved me. And, and I know I've mentioned this movie here before, but the movie Shawshank Redemption. And I remember first watching it in the, in the scene when Andy finally gets out of prison. You've seen the movie. And it's such a powerful scene. He's free and he's standing there under the water. And it, it's just such this, oh, it's one of those scenes where you just, you almost like feel it. Why? It's because he wasn't just arrested for one, and spent one night in jail and then was bailed out the next day. It's because he wasn't just you know, slapped in the hand. It's because he had been in prison for more than 20 years, 
and he'd lost everything and he'd been corrupted, he'd been violated and all his wealth and everything had been taken away from him and now he's free because there was such a great condemnation, the freedom was so great. It's the same thing with God. You can't really understand what forgiveness means, what, what the mercy of God means, the glory of God's mercy, except against the backdrop of God's justice. And, and you know, there's no more real, more powerful depiction of this than the Exodus scene. There was this great French artist that, that would make all of these engravings, Gustave Dore, and he has this one of the Exodus scene. And I don't know if it appears on the screen that clearly for you guys, but go home and it's Gustave Dore. Go home and Google it. It's such a powerful scene and it's such a powerful scene to think about. There's Israel on the hill. They've just passed through a sea on dry ground. God has been so merciful to them. They have felt God's mercy in this powerful way. And they're turning around and they're looking at the Egyptians being flooded by the same sea against the backdrop of God's real justice that is now being displayed against the Egyptians. What is their feeling? Oh, the mercy of God, the power of God. We see the song of Moses as the, this response of praise. In wrath, God, Habakkuk sings. In wrath, wrath that I know we deserve. He's been, that's why the whole book starts. He says, we are a bad people. We deserve your wrath, but remember your mercy. You know, this picture, this is really, I was looking at this picture this week. This is really all of life. This one little picture. This is everything. You will either bring glory to God by staying in your sin and being the object of his wrath against sin, being the object of his justice, or you will bring glory to God by looking to the mediator, Jesus, and being the object of his mercy. This is all of life. This is every soul that has ever lived right here, in a sense. So we see his request. <laughs> May I be the one that is the object of your mercy. In, in your wrath, Lord, remember your mercy toward me, toward your covenant people. We also see Habakkuk remembering God's power just meditating. He's, he's just received this horrible news and he's meditating on the power of God. He's meditating on his creative power. His splendor covers the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. There he veiled his power. Go down to verse seven. We see some clarity here. He says, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? What is this all about? What, what Habakkuk is doing is he's, he's meditating on God's salvation of his people. Kushan was a part of Africa that would have been to the south and to the west of Egypt. Midian was an area that would have been to the north and to the east of Egypt. So he's imagining all of Egypt here. And he's imagining how God brought salvation to his people. And he's saying, look, it wasn't that you hated the river. Your anger wasn't against the rivers when you turned the Nile into blood. Your indignation wasn't against the sea when you split the Red Sea so your people could 
pass on dry ground. What he's saying is you are the sovereign God over nations and nature and all things. And you're working out all of these things for the care and good and salvation of your covenant people. Do you see what he's doing here? He's working himself through creation. He's working himself through historical events. And he's reminding himself over and over of the power of God and the care of God toward the people that he loves. He's recounting God's authority. He's recounting God's salvation. He's recounting God's strength. And so we finally come to the third point here, which is Habakkuk's faith. And I love this part of the passage because it's so honest. I mean, it's so honest. This is why we need Habakkuk. We don't have enough of this in modern evangelical thought, imagination. So Habakkuk has just sung this incredible song. I mean, he's just sung this incredible song. We didn't even go through it all, but the, the, the whole song is about the power of God and the care of God and God's favor toward his covenant people. And then he says, and then he remembers what God has told him about the Chaldeans. He remembers the destruction that's about to befall on Israel. He's, remember, he's remembering what is about to be taken away from, from the people of Judah. And he says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. He's saying, I feel faint. I'm about to fall over. My legs tremble. I am weak. I am overcome beneath me. I love this because it's, it's so honest. <laughs> He's thinking about what he had to go through and he, and he really reacts. He's not happy. He, he feels horrible. And yet, I love this. He still trusts God. I love this. I don't know that, we, I don't know that many of us have a category for this in our theology. He's like, I feel horrible. I'm not happy. <laughs> Bad things are about to happen. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Yet, yet, he's basically saying, I know that God will defeat the Chaldeans. I know that God will save his people. I know that God, but despite all of this, I know that God loves his people. This reminds me of Job. Remember the story of Job? Job loses everything. His wealth is gone. His family is gone. His reputation is gone. His property is gone. And how does Job respond? The end of Job 1. I love this. It says, Job rose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. You're not, you're not supposed to get the depiction here of a happy person. His family has just died. His wealth has just been taken away from him. He has no idea what he's going to do. He tears his clothes. He shaves his head. He falls on the ground. And then it says, and worshiped. And worshiped. Do you know how to worship God like that? I mean, do you have a category for that? I, I, I get it. I know, I know when you get the promotion, you know how to worship God and talk about the goodness of God. I know when you thought you were sick, but then the doctor says, but you're really well now. I know in that moment, you know how to think and worship and think about the goodness of God. I know that when everybody loves you and the guy that you've been wanting to ask you out and ask you out and the relationship's going great. I know you know how to worship God. 
But do you know how to worship and meditate on the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God toward his covenant people when you are so lonely, when you are so sick, when you are so sad? This is why we need Habakkuk. This is, this is not like the 21st century mindset. We don't really live in a world that has much of a category for that. But, but this is how God and his people interact all throughout the scripture. The question becomes, how? How does, how does Habakkuk have so much faith in the midst of his lament? I mean, that... Again, like I said, that's the golden gun. I mean, that's the silver bullet. If I, could, if I could tell you how, you'd be like, okay, I mean, I'm invincible. Bring on whatever storm that may. I know that I can have confidence through it. How? How? And I've been telling you, but now I want to tell you explicitly. <laughs> what is Habakkuk recounting? What are all of these things that Habakkuk is remembering? And, and it is, if you will, his gospel. The gospel as he knew it. He's recounting the story of the people of Israel being saved. He's recounting the story of salvation. He's recounting the story of Moses going into Egypt and leading the people of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage, through the sea by bringing these curses upon the people of Egypt and, and bringing them to the safe place, to the promised land. He's, he's as it were, he's singing this Shigioth, Shigianoth, and it's the gospel. He's just rehearsing the gospel over and over. He's just talking about God's salvation over and over. He is singing the gospel. The gospel as he knew it. The people were enslaved. They were hopeless. They were dead. There's nothing they could do to free themselves. And God sent a mediator to save them. And so he is able, though, though everything around him is going bad, he's, he's not crushed. He's not disillusioned. He's not bitter. He's not angry. He has so much poise. This is so strange in our age. There is not a like 21st century category for this. People around you all the time, they will either ride so high on their success and be so proud of how amazing their life is because of all these good things that they've done, or when those things fall apart, they will become so self-righteous and so cynical and so bitter and so angry. That's the world around you. But what is this? Habakkuk is saying, what if you could have something that transcends all of that? What if you could have something that's higher than all of that? And he remembers that the great God of the universe has saved his people, that God deeply cares about his covenant people and that he can do it again. And so he sings the Shigianoth. He sings the gospel over and over. He sings about the Exodus. But listen, Christ's covenant, this is the good news. This is, what's, this is why what we're doing is so important. We have a better gospel to sing, an even greater gospel than this. You know, you know that Jesus actually had this conversation with Moses? Do you know this? Luke 9 says that Jesus took his disciples, James and John and Peter, and they went up to the mountain. And Jesus started appearing before them in this transfigured way. And all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses show up. And in Luke 9, 21, all of your English translators, and look, 
Translating Greek and Hebrew is not uh, easy. And so I say this with a lot of grace, but every English translator struggles with this word. It says that Jesus and Elijah and Moses were talking about, and most of your English translations will say, Jesus' departure or something like that. But the real Greek word, you know what the literal Greek word is? They were talking about Jesus' exodus. I can imagine Jesus saying, man, Moses, you went into Egypt. We were doomed. Our people were enslaved. We were dead. We, we had no help. We had no hope of getting out. And God, through you, brought salvation. And we came under the blood of the lamb and death came upon Egypt, but life for us. And we crossed through the sea, the same sea that brought judgment upon the Egyptians for their wickedness. God saved us. What an exodus. And then them saying, but the exodus that Jesus is about to pull off, an even greater exodus. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, ruined, no help. I mean, who, what, what could we do to appease God? What could we do to hide our sin? And yet Jesus came to identify with us. He didn't just risk his life for us. He gave his life for us and he became the sacrificial lamb under whose blood we are saved. And he didn't just pass through judgment. He endured judgment. He, he went through judgment so that we could pass through safely, so that we could go to the promised name, so that we, and I want you to hear this, so that we could know God, so that we could be the covenant people of God. And God deeply cares about his covenant people so that we can know this God who has sovereign authority over all nature and over every nation and over every culture and over every influence and over every power, these things are just pawns in his hand to bring about his glory and to bring about the good of his people. And you'll be able to hold on to that in the greatest storm if you learn from Habakkuk and, 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 and rehearse this gospel and sing this gospel and remind yourselves of the character and nature of God again and again and again and again this is my identity. This is who I am. I am part of the covenant people of God and God deeply cares about his covenant people. And even though I'm in the worst storm ever, it's not that I'm happy. And the Bible has this very real place for lament, but I have poise. I have peace. I have joy. I, I have faith. Is that how you understand God? Is that your life? Is that your identity? Is, is it the gospel that is giving you an identity? Is this what you're rehearsing? Is this how you're reminding yourself of where joy and life really come from? One chapter later in Luke 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples and they've just gone out and they've gone out there. It's like their first ministry assignment. They go out and they're preaching and they're casting out demons and they're healing the sick and they come back to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you're not gonna believe it. We cast out demons in your name and we healed sick. We did all this amazing stuff. And you know what he says to them? And this is what I would say to you. You know, I'm so proud of you guys. I really am. I love you guys. I love this church. You guys, you're going to go out. You, 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 great things are happening among you. You're doing amazing things. But here's what Jesus says to them. Don't rejoice. Don't rejoice in the fact that you healed the sick and cast out demons. Don't, don't, don't rejoice there. Don't find your identity there. Rejoice in this. 
that your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice in this. Your name is written in the book of life. Don't rejoice in princes. Don't rejoice in your achievements. Don't rejoice in that promotion you got. Don't rejoice in the fact that, you know, that gal finally said yes to go on a date with you. Praise God, I'm happy for you. But if that's your life, if that's your identity, and two dates in, she decides, I really don't like you, you're going to be crushed. If getting that promotion is your identity and at the end of this year, you get cut from that job, you're going to be destroyed. Being healthy and living a long life, and then you get sick at a young age and have a terminal illness, you're going to be so disillusioned. Don't rejoice in those things. Rejoice in this. That rejoice that God has given you something that can never be taken away. Your name can never be erased from the book of life. It's been secured through a greater exodus, <laughs> through a greater redeemer. Rejoice in this. Your name is written in the book of life. Look to Jesus. Rehearse this gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the person today This is in the greatest storm. The person I talked to after the first service that has just had a stroke. I know there's people that are facing very similar storms right now in this room. And I pray that despite that storm, they would be able to find in you a rest and a joy and a peace. They would rejoice in this. Their name is written in the book of life. And Father, I also pray for the person who has literally had the most amazing year of their entire life. They're wealthier, they're healthier. They're more, have a sense of community greater than they've ever had. I pray they wouldn't rejoice in those things. They're gifts. Where they would really rejoice is their name is written in the book of life. They have something that can never be taken away that's not fragile. And that in these moments, Lord, whether high or low, we would we would find our place in being your covenant people, a people that you've called to yourself by your own son, Jesus, our great mediator, our great redeemer, our great savior. Help us find our life and place, strength in him. And may we be a people that sings his gospel again and again and again and again, because we forget it again and again. But I pray that you would even now use these, this singing and this time of communion just to sink these truths deep in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name.